This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This week in the news, the NOTAM outage and subsequent ground stop, why Amazon Air is selling cargo capacity, the runway incursion at JFK, and the Airbus Automated Emergency Diversion System. We also have an Australia News Desk report, and we'll tell you about a survey for airline pilots. All that and more, coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 733, where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. And with me is Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's also a business jet pilot and a CFI. Rob also spent 10 years of his career at the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor. And if all that isn't enough, he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, Rob. Wow. I, I'm exhausted just listening to all that. That's but, quite a lot. Uh, hey, listen, thank you for uh, having me back for another fun episode but somebody's missing, aren't they? Max Trescott is missing. He's off doing some or giving some flight instruction. So uh, he's not able to join us this episode. But uh, we do have David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Good evening, everyone, or good afternoon, or whenever you're choosing to listen to this podcast. Um, we're looking forward to having a lot of ATC talk this evening um, but we also have a very interesting guest, um, who is not here at the moment. So we have some kind of a, uh, little scheduling snafu. I guess there is the possibility that uh, he might call in, 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 uh, in progress here as we're in, in the middle of the show and we'll, uh, figure out what to do. But otherwise it's just the three of us. It's like the, it, it's like the good old days of like. The lower 300s of Airplane Geeks. That's right. If you can remember back that uh, that far. And, and they, they were low for a reason because we weren't up to speed yet. <laughs> yeah, we were still learning. Yep. It's taken us over 700 to get it right. All right. Well, we do have some aviation news from the past week, some interesting stuff going on. So why don't we jump right into that? Are you guys ready? Ready from the south. Midwest is also ready. Our first item comes from NPR. Here's the latest on the NOTAM outage that caused flight delays and cancellations. Uh, I think uh, probably everybody has heard about this. I think the the most interesting thing in the news reports, Rob, was uh, people struggling to learn how to pronounce N-O-T-A-M because they, they just, uh, the, the talking heads had just never spoken that word before. But uh, this was a pretty significant outage, or the effect was pretty significant. Eh, I guess it depends upon the, the perspective that you take. Uh, I mean, for the airlines, uh, they don't have any choice. They they have very strict rules about uh, notices to air missions, uh, which are all the safety notice notifications, uh, uh, runway closures, uh, runway lights out of service, a nav, a nav aid that's busted, uh, 
uh, a taxiway that's closed, uh, all kinds of things pilots would like to know, and they normally do before they take off. Uh, This time, they weren't able to get that information because somebody did something, I guess a couple of contractors uh, got involved in the uh, uh, updates on the system, and it went down because they corrupted the file. Uh, and uh, I don't think they meant to do it on purpose, obviously, but it screwed it up, and they it uh, it carried over to the backup, and even the backup didn't work. So that makes you think, wow, that system's pretty screwed up, uh, and it probably is. It's pretty old. Yeah, and, and fragile, I guess. Now, all this happened on January 11th, 2023, and there were thousands of delays and canceled flights and it was it was quite a mess it was a national ground stop i mean this is not an unconsequential thing for the faa to say all aircraft no departures you know anything in the air could continue but no i mean the last time we did that was 9 11 so that should show you the the level of concern that was implemented for this well, I think you're right, David, and I, I didn't mean to make it sound like uh, uh, it, it didn't have big ramifications. But I, I think from a from a pilot standpoint, uh, the weather in much of the nation was good. Uh, it didn't mean that air traffic, uh, as David said, there were still airplanes in the air. There were quite a few of them in the air. And air traffic controllers were still there. They were still talking to the airplanes at, in, the, in the radar rooms and the control towers in the in-route centers. They were keeping everybody separated. Uh, so there really wasn't that kind of, oh my God, the world is ending kind of calamity like we did on 9-11. Uh, and, and I think what I was trying to imply was that uh, the airlines are, are more tightly regulated than, say, uh, somebody out going out to fly his Piper Cub or uh, a Bonanza, VFR, or even a business jet that was going to use the IFR system. They could still just file a flight plan and go. I mean, the worst that would happen is that if you were flying from, I don't know, Chicago to uh, Dallas, uh, as you got close to the Dallas area, you might ask the controller, hey, anything uh, going on down at uh, Dallas Addison I need to know about? And they might say, oh, yeah, you know, the... uh, the uh, the runway lights are out down there. Oh well, it's daytime. It's VFR. I don't really need to worry about that. And and to us, it wasn't quite as big a, a, a mess as it was for the airlines because of the ground stop. That completely screwed up the schedule for the airlines because when that first bank, as we call it, doesn't get out in the morning, as it didn't from the East Coast or Midwest or any place else. Everything else gets screwed up because those airplanes can't be back. You know, if they were supposed to fly from New York to Kansas City, uh, well, the flight out of Kansas City was going to go to Dallas. That flight didn't happen because the airplane never got there to be the flight out to Dallas. And multiply that a few thousand times. And and as David alluded to, it was it was chaos. It was just a mess. And coming on top of that chaos that happened at Christmas time, people were just, I I mean, I saw a lot of video and a lot of people weren't even mad. They were just, (laughs) they were just depressed. Yeah, they were blown away. Rob, do you think they overreacted by the ground stop? Um, 
Well, the the ground stop actually uh, applied to it said commercial aircraft, uh, and so see a, a business aviation jet, a Falcon that that technically didn't apply. So when they taxied out for takeoff at you know uh, uh, Kansas City downtown airport, uh, they gave them a clearance, cleared for takeoff, off you go. Uh, it wasn't that big a deal, uh, but but. Uh, so, but but again, the way the FAA operates, uh, they, they can't handle these kinds of chaotic failures. And uh, and and I think everybody at uh, FAA and DOT said, "What else is going on here? Uh, what else might be failing uh, that we don't know about?" And they said, "We're not taking any chances." Um, and so they stopped everybody. Uh, it, it's only in hindsight that it looks like maybe it was over uh, an overreaction. But, uh, you know, at the time it's happening. Mm-mm. And there is kind of a spillover effect to uh, military aviation. At least uh, that's talked about in, a, in an article I found in, in Gadget where they talk about the Defense Internet NOTAM service, the DINS service, I guess, D-I-N-S service. And uh, military flights, they can proceed in situations like this, according to this article. Uh, But an Air Force spokesman said that the uh, military pilots had to call around to ask for potential flight hazards themselves, which I thought was kind of interesting. But... um, so I guess there is there can be a, an impact on on military aviation. Well, but but the mili- number of military flights and the number of business aviation flights, the number of pure general aviation flights, they are minimal compared to the thousands of airline flights that would have gone off that yeah. day. And so, you know, again, if I were at FAA, I would have probably done the same thing. And Max, one of the things that you got to keep in mind is that that military aircraft do operate from in civilian airfields. If they are going across country or doing across country, it's not un- unusual to have a military aircraft land at a civilian airfield, and they need the NOTAM information just like anybody else would have. So, like like Rob says, I mean, they could probably get it from the control tower while they were there, but. They are still flying in civilian airspace and are governed by civilian rules and have, you know, especially if they're on a cross country and they're landing at an airport they're not familiar with. The NOTAMs really, that's really the most important time that you need it is when you're landing at an unfamiliar airport. It's the basic information you need to land at that airport besides weather. Now, uh, curiously, NAV Canada also reported issues with their NOTAM system on the same day. Now, there's no evidence of you know any kind of malicious activity here, at least not as we record this. But, boy, that's kind of a strange coincidence, I guess, unless, unless NAV Canada's NOTAM system is somehow linked to the U.S. system in a way that it could one could take down the other, that would be a really fragile relationship, if that's true. I I did think that was very strange. Now, of course, um, we can, if we dial it in the right way, we can pick up notams from uh, all over the na- uh, all over the world. I mean, if a flight out of uh, Teterboro is, is down to Sao Paulo in Brazil, the pilots have to have a way to get that information. Um, and uh, and they can, 
But again, I did think that was, well, two things I thought were odd. One, that it went down. And two, that we haven't heard anything about it since. I mean, nobody's said, oh, by the way, if you noticed, uh, uh, Nav Canada's uh, NOTAM system went down at the same time. Well, here's what we found out. Nobody has, at least I haven't heard anybody say anything, which, again, is pretty weird. So most likely we'll see some response to this that involves system upgrades or investing in upgrades. But I don't know, the the, the federal government, uh, when it comes to computer systems uh, or, or this computer technology in general, uh, you know, your, your 12-year-old niece knows more. 10 to 15 years, my father used to say 10 to 15 years behind the general public. Yes, yes. Probably. And, and, and I think the air traffic control system is much like uh, the interstate highway system. It's, there are only two seasons, of uh, winter and construction. And uh, except that they're not usually tied to, uh, to the winter part. But they are every time you talk to anybody from FAA, they're always updating. The updates, we're updating this. We're adding new, we're adding... And you hear that these things are sort of in the works, but you don't really hear an awful lot of detail about, oh, now we have the new XYZ digital system up and running for NOTAMs. Or, and on top of it, the, the best, the funniest part of the story was that the FAA wasn't even planning on updating this until, uh, I think, 2030 or something. Uh, and I, they're going to update it now, I think. But Max and Rob, remember way back in the day when we were in the early 200s of this show and we were going to talk about ADSB and and, and direct, you know, all of this digital stuff that has yet to happen, I don't think this will ever get fixed. Oh, I hope so. But, Rob, you were, I know you got pulled into uh, a, a segment on News Nation about this. And is that where I heard the uh, the, the vacuum tube comment? Was that your uh, <laughs> statement? It, it may have been. Because, I think it was. Uh, tell us what, tell everybody what, well, what you'd say. It, that was hysterical. Decade, decades ago, the... Uh, uh, the FAA was known as the largest, uh, the largest user of vacuum tubes in the world. Uh, that was, I'd say, probably just uh, at the turn of the century, and and that was a a slight. It was a across the face to FAA saying, "Oh my God, everybody else is running on transistorized circuit boards, and and you guys are still using vacuum tubes," um, but. Uh, I, I I was going to make another point there. I can't remember what it was, but it was based on what David was saying. But yeah, outdated systems that that may or may not eventually get updated. I don't know. Well, of course, these things get. Um, well, the FAA gets its direction from the uh, uh, the the authorization, the reauthorization uh, legislation that's passed. So it's the Congress that directs the FAA and situations like this. So, we'll, you know, we'll see the next bill if this comes up as a topic. Through, through the DOT, they direct yeah. FAA. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. oh, I know what I was going to mention. David said something about ADSB, and uh, it did get finished, but uh, a lot of that was because of private industry. 
if you look at the Iridium company uh, that uh, does the uh, satellite phones, uh, they were very instrumental in, in helping airports and other places uh, create the uh, receiver sites for ADSB so that all of this could get linked together. And uh, I think, uh, I believe Lockheed was also involved in that. And, uh, you know, FAA and DOT may have told them to do it. But then, of course, they also had a mandate that by, when was it? I think it was January of, January three years ago, where everybody had to have ADSB uh, to fly in uh, relatively congested airspace in the United States and also above 18,000 feet. And, and it got done. It, it, it did. And it's, it's, uh, it's producing terrific benefits now. I mean, when we look at what happened with an airplane on a particular day, we can go up to FlightAware. We can see the uh, track information about, uh, you know, four minutes before this airplane had an incident. It was five miles east of the airport at 2,600 feet doing 180 knots. And, you know, I mean, that kind of information wasn't available before. Yes, well, okay, why don't we uh, press on and... David, David, say you're sorry to the FAA for making that <laughs> callous comment about them not getting things finished. I'm sorry, Mayor Pete. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mayor Pete. Yeah, I forgot about Mayor Pete. From Aero Explorer, Amazon Air to sell surplus capacity on board its jets ahead of predicted market slump. So um, they're saying that in 2023, this year... The global air freight market is forecast to shrink by about 25%. And I guess that's because of the of a bubble during the pandemic, I'm uh, assuming, where uh, the, uh, the amount of shipments just really went up significantly. So there's a pullback. Maybe there are other factors involved. Well, and the economy is down somewhat. Uh, uh, we, we don't have a recession yet. Uh, well, I forgot what the economic definition of is. It two quarters of reduced Downward. growth. Yeah, uh, is but it just two or is it three? It, or I don't remember. But all I know is that when somebody starts saying recession, people just don't seem to ever become happy until they finally say, "See, I told you that recession was coming." Uh, but anyway, I mean, yeah, uh, look at uh, uh, business aviation airplanes were selling like hotcakes six months ago. And that now it's starting to uh, slow down. But it, it has to. They couldn't possibly keep up the pace of uh, what they were doing for, you know, indefinitely. Although in Amazon's, I'm glad they're doing what they're doing. But I, I still think it's amazing that I can go up on... Uh, uh, Amazon and order something and get it the same evening, I and it, they drop it on my front porch. I I don't yeah. And the drones haven't even come yet to deliver. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> so so this is an interesting uh, uh, issue or concern for Amazon Air because uh, they have a pretty substantial fleet now. Uh, I think about ninety seven wet leased airplanes. They're all wet leased, so they have excess capacity on those planes. And um, what this uh, story is telling us is that they intend, Amazon Air intends to to uh, sell that excess capacity to others. I don't know who the others are. And if there's a general shrinkage in the market, 
you know, uh, there may be some competition to provide air freight services. Uh, it's a good point. I, I don't know who they would be selling them to. Uh, uh, small businesses. I can't believe they'd be selling excess capacity to uh, to FedEx if they didn't have enough airplanes. But I guess it's possible that yeah. uh, Prime Air might have airplanes going someplace that FedEx can't because of a uh, an aircraft problem or something like that. Or or maybe my buddy about the uh, United. How about the United States Postal Service? Um, well, they they drive little electric cars now, uh, trucks, and they don't need, need to, to worry. Yeah, you know that's a good point. I, I, of course, I think all the airlines carry USPS uh, mail now. Um, but um, yeah, maybe uh, there's opportunities out there. But, uh, I hope so because uh, they're uh, they're if Amazon is trying to get ahead of this, uh, I'm sure the opportunities are there. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Max, what's what's the difference between? I mean, what's the definition of a wet lease? They're they're stuck. They can't return those, can they? Well, I guess it depends on the contract they have. But there are operators. Um, Amazon Air is not the operator. Uh, so, for example, the the, uh, the bulk of Amazon's fleet is Boeing seven six sevens, dash two hundreds and dash three hundred ERs, but those are operated by Air Transport International, ABX Air, a couple of them with Cargo Jet Airways. Atlas, another one, I think. Atlas operates some of the 737s because they have some some Dash 800 737s. Um, Sun Country also operates those, as well as ASL Airlines Ireland. They do have some Airbus uh, planes on order, some A330s. will be operated by Hawaiian Airlines and... Um, I understand those deliveries are are scheduled for later this year. They uh, they're just orders at this point. They haven't uh, haven't received them, and you know that's another thing. Um, you know what what is you know, kind of to your point, David, is uh, for these ten A three thirties that are on order and scheduled to start coming in. You know, will they push those out? Usually, there's some kind of a you know clause in the in the agreement that might allow that, but with certain penalties and I mean, it could get very, very complicated. And Amazon would run the numbers, you know, run the math. What is uh, what makes the most sense? Taking these aircraft when they may not need the capacity um, versus paying to delay them. You know, it's an economic calculation. All right, uh, another item in the news, um, very current. The FAA is investigating this near miss uh, runway incursion between two. Uh, to commercial flights at JFK. This just happened. So, Rob, this is a, a, a Delta Airlines uh, 737 and a 777-7 uh, from American Airlines that had kind of a spicy moment there. Spicy. Um, well, uh, I remember that uh, a crusty old pilot that I used to fly with said, it, it ain't, uh, well, he didn't use the word spicy. He He used to say something else, but when you cross the runway when you weren't supposed to at night, it, it don't mean nothing if you can't really see their headlights, you know, <laughs> making shadows on your cockpit walls. I mean, then you know it's really close. Okay. Uh, but FAA, no, and I don't really, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make fun of this because this, this could have been a really, really serious uh, issue. Uh, and runway incursions are a big deal 
for FAA and, and everybody. They should be. And uh, f- as people are uh, listening to this, they might go up to uh, pull down a, a copy of the uh, taxi chart at uh, JFK. You can get one up on the AOPA site if you're a member. And uh, and look at the configuration of the where the terminals are on the northeast side of the airport. And uh, uh, the the bits and pieces I heard of uh, the conversation that we pulled off of uh, live ATC, which obviously was edited because there are some parts missing. Uh, you all you hear is the uh, pilot of the triple uh, seven saying, "Well, the last clearance we had was that we were cleared across," and and the ground controller says, uh, "You know, American, I forgot what his call sign was." American 1595, uh, we're departing runway four left, and you're now sitting at the approach end of three one left. And when you look at the taxi chart, you realize he had to cross runway four left to get to three one left. So somebody misunderstood something, uh, you know, and again, uh, that's why uh, the controller, FAA in general, is so vehement about pilots reading back their clearances. You know, American 1595, runway four left. Roger, four left, American 1595. So they got you right there. Now, what happened in the cockpit, if that was indeed the case? It was nighttime. Airports look very different at night. I don't know what the weather was uh, at that time. But uh, these two pilots are taxiing out. And one of them says, I I know where I'm going. I'm going to 3-1 left. And somehow... The person that talked on the radio that said runway four left, if that's what they said, uh, something happened there. Did the ground controller mistakenly give him three one left? Possible. Uh, Again, did the pilot hear three one left and read that back and the ground controller missed that on the readback? Possible. Uh, Did the pilots just flat screw it up and hear four left and just somehow in their minds just headed to 3-1 left because they that's the way they go almost all the time when they depart. Who knows? But all we know for sure is that there was only 1,000 feet. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, uh, 737 that was departing on 4 left stopped 1,000 feet from the uh, intersection that the 777 had just gone through. So if times had been a little bit different... Uh, yeah, I think that the guys on the triple seven would have probably seen the headlights making some shadows in their cockpit when they looked down runway, uh, down the runway. Uh, well, that's another point. They're supposed to look before they cross. Uh, they're coming up on a runway. They have software in the cockpit that says approaching runway four left and you know, there's okay. Yep. Clear on the right, clear on the left. I mean, if the airplane was taking off on four left, they had to have the the, the, the lights on. Uh, how'd they miss that? I was going to say one thing that uh, at uh, at the American and the uh, Delta flight ops uh, up at Kennedy, somebody got some serious splaining to do. The American crew went back to the gate and... Oh, wait, is it, wait I can't remember if it was the American or Delta. Uh but one of the airplanes went back to the gate. I'd have to look at the story again. And uh, the uh, everybody deplaned because they, it was like, time out, slow down. 
Let's start all over again. Right. So did they go back to the gate just because it was a tense moment and it's better to just, you know, calm down and take a breather? Is is that why you think they went well, back to the gate? Part, part of the reason, but also um, in many of the uh, operations at, uh, at the airlines, they are required by the union that if they have a close call like that on the ground, it's, it's, it's a timeout for everybody. Ah, okay. Well, that kind of makes sense because I'm sure that the uh, adrenaline was probably pumping. I know it, it sounds like it was kind of dramatic because uh, I did see some passengers being interviewed and they, uh, well, it sounds like the binders went on, you know, pretty strongly that what, oh, yeah. when they started breaking, the passengers knew that this was not a good situation. And one of them said when they finally came to a complete stop, they were all just really relieved. Yeah. The, uh, oh, I see here. It's the Delta flight that went back to the gate. I, uh, the, the Delta flight did go back to the gate, but I would imagine the American flight, I can't believe those guys would have taken off. Because again, when they uh, uh, when they go, they have an incident like this, it's supposed to be let let's time out, reset. Uh, because nobody knows who did what wrong, and they've got to figure that out first. But uh, to your other point, uh, or maybe David was the one that brought this up. Uh, when when there's a rejected takeoff, that that is an absolutely critical. It, it's a really really dangerous maneuver. Because the airplane can often be uh, up at 100, 110, 120 knots. And, and when you haul back on the, on the throttles and get on the brakes and then pull the reverser buckets out, it's, it's pretty hard on, on everybody because everybody in the cabin is just about ready to, to feel, you know, hear the, uh, uh, here, here back, we go, relax. we're about, yeah, we're about to fly. And, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> You know, if, they, if the doors weren't closed, things come flying out of the overhead compartment, and uh, it it and it scares the bejesus out of everybody. It really does, and and I think that's probably one of the main reasons they they want to send everybody back to the gate to just you know let their blood pressure yeah. get back down to normal. But they also need a brake check on the uh, mm-hmm. on the departing aircraft because when you climb on those binders, uh, you can really, really heat up the brakes pretty heavy. And uh, and they need to get a mechanic out there to take a look at that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, this was a really, this was a potentially dangerous situation. This scares me way more than the Notum computer failure that the FAA had. Well, and it does feel to me like this is something that an investigation ought to be pretty quick and and decisive, right? I mean, it's just a matter of listening to the tapes, you know, to, the, to the, what was said what was, and what was done and so forth. Um, so, so that part of it ought to be pretty easy. Uh, and then I guess what would follow that would be, a, a, you know, a discussion about, okay, so how do we, what can we change or what do we need to change to prevent that from happening again? Oh, sure. Well, and, and you know, the American, American Airlines will be looking at a lot of things. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, the NTSB and the FAA will be looking at a lot of things. How long was the American crew on duty? Uh, it was a heavy airplane. Probably this was their first uh, leg uh, of the of the night. Uh, or, or were they also flying 
earlier in the day and had a break and came back? Or would they have possibly been tired? Uh, was anybody ill? Uh, did either of the pilots have anything going on in their lives that uh, uh, could possibly have distracted them? Was there a mechanical problem uh, in, in the airplane? Did they have a, you know, like we just saw with, with David's internet going down, did something cough at the wrong time? Uh, there's there's a whole lot of things. Yeah, that go so it's on. not quite as simple as I was well, suggesting. It it no, it's, right. uh, but I think you're right. It it's it's probably going to come pretty soon because everybody is going to want to know how do we prevent this from happening again. Right. All right. Well, uh, let's look at the next uh, story. This is from Engadget. Airbus tests pilot assist that can automatically divert flights. Uh, this is a a pilot assistance feature called Dragonfly. And it, this sounds a little bit familiar, Rob. It's it's a system that can automatically divert a flight in an emergency. Sure, listeners that uh, may say, I've heard this. Uh, Garmin created a, an Autoland system on the general aviation side uh, a few years ago. Uh, the Cirrus Vision Jet uses it. Uh, and and a number of other uh, uh, the TBMs the cicadas uh, use it and uh, it's 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 a pretty cool system and and it was designed so that people that are taking uh, uh, you know three four or five passengers out for a flight in in a particular airplane if something were to happen to the pilot uh, the uh, person in the right seat all they have to do is push a button and the airplane will it'll It'll take uh, take the controls and it will decide where the nearest suitable airport is. It uh, and it makes that decision based on the uh, the weather, the wind, um, and uh, the the airplane's capabilities. Uh, and it, it will fly a flight plan. It'll put a flight plan into the uh, uh, flight management system, and the airplane's autopilot will follow it. It'll turn itself onto the ILS or the RNAV or whatever approach it wants and bring it all the way down to the ground, and it'll flare the airplane, pull the throttle back, and stop the airplane. I mean, that that's pretty cool. And, the, and so the general aviation world was way ahead of anybody else on this one. And the Airbus system is probably going to be similar to that but it's still at a very, very early stage. Uh, it's still in the testing mode. Uh, it's not even close to being certified. And they're using an, uh, an A350 as a, a test bed. Um, but Airbus thinks, hey, you know what? Uh, if, um, uh, if the GA guys can do it, we can do it in our Airbus. Um, you notice there wasn't a... <laughs> There wasn't a note uh, c- competing from Boeing saying, uh, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're doing that too." Um, uh, no, they're actually not doing it. So, uh, uh, at least not that we know of. But um, I, I think it's it's going to be pretty cool. It's still years away from being certified, but Airbus is hoping it will it will help uh, uh, their uh, uh, aircraft purchasers. Uh, have more flexibility with their airplanes if people can know that if something were to happen with the crew up front, um, they can always just, somebody just pushes a button and, you know, it lands. Um, so 
that begs a question in my mind <laughs> anyway is that the the two, the two drone guys are are, are 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 heading down the same path yeah i yeah. bet you i'm going the same where you are yeah yeah so if you have this capability and it works ultimately as as well as they hope it to then then do you even need the pilots well i think you're probably right on the money that i don't believe that uh, gar or garmin i'm sorry i don't believe airbus is really doing this just because the ga guys did it i think they're thinking the same thing that you guys are that well, you know it's not going to happen in the next year or two but right. 10 15 20 years from now uh, you know we wanted to get these airplanes down to one pilot why don't we just skip one pilot and I'll bet you we could prove that it'll it'll fly with none of them on board. Now, the, the big question to me is, will they tell the passengers, uh, <laughs> welcome aboard, uh, you know, uh, uh, American Delta 609 uh, direct service from uh, JFK to Los Angeles. Uh, uh, somebody will be driving today from somewhere um, and... Um, but we don't exactly know who they are or where they are. Uh, but have a nice flight, and we'll get back to you if there's any problems. Uh, no, I, you know, who knows? But I do think that's where it's probably headed, or at least they're going to try it. Yeah, maybe that's the the strategy. So this is this Dragonfly is is actually a follow on to a a previous project called the Autonomous Taxi Takeoff and Landing Project. And they had some flight dem or some demonstrations, yeah, some flight demonstrations in uh, in 2020. And uh, but it's an interesting system. It's it's f f uh, fully autonomous. Uh, this uh, A T T O L autonomous taxi takeoff and landing, uh, autonomous vision based taxiing takeoff and landing, and it uses uh, image recognition that's on board. And as you mentioned, Rob, they've been using this A350 test aircraft uh, for this. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of cameras, a lot of uh, computing infrastructure that's doing image processing. And you know, to kind of to to what David was uh, suggesting earlier, I mean, this all sounds like a lot of technology that's also being explored in a number of different areas. Maybe it's all starting to come together. Well, and, and think about that uh, earlier story about the two almost running together at uh, at Kennedy. Uh, if if an airliner were were flying with one of these uh, uh, autonomous systems on a night when uh, uh, let's say the visibility was really bad, uh, and they and, and it's it can be really difficult to taxi an airplane on, on, around on an airport, and, and you can't see a hundred feet in front of you. I mean, you, you're not even sure when the next sign is coming up. Maybe you can see two run, uh, taxiway lights ahead. It's a very disconcerting feeling. Um, but uh, it it would, uh, you know, that might be the kind of thing they said, well, we're going to use the autonomous system to get us to the right runway. It would have never let the airplane cross four left at Kennedy. It would have stopped them uh, if something happened. It would have turned them. They should have turned right before they got to four left. I mean, we get all these lefts and rights, and it can be a little confusing. <laughs> I'm but, confused. Uh, but again, it uh, it would have it would have caught that. Uh, at least it's supposed to catch it. Uh, and that's that's people are going to say, see, that would have never happened if uh, if this had been running. 
Um, and, and let's face it, most of the time, computers don't make a mistake. It's just that when they do, the results tend to be often pretty disastrous. Well, we've talked a lot about air traffic control this episode, and I want to tell you about, just quickly, about a uh, an interesting new podcast that I ran across. It's called Air Traffic Out of Control. I, li- I listened to a few episodes. It's it's kind of fun. They bring you curated ATC recordings. Some of them are funny. Some of them are interesting. Sometimes even un- unbelievable. And they publish a full episode every Wednesday. And they do short flyby episodes, they call them, throughout the week. Um, so you can find air traffic out of control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Um, some of the recent issues, uh, re- rather recent episodes, um, uh, one is uh, emergency situations where the, the pilots and the controllers were cool as cucumbers. We've seen that before. Another one was an Aer Lingus plane that was headed for Dublin, and it had an engine fire on, uh, on takeoff from JFK. Uh, another episode was uh, about a, f- uh, a plane flying in presidential restricted airspace. And uh, another one was about an air traffic controller at Toronto Pearson International Airport who tries to bring a smile to the face of, of the pilots. So it is a new podcast. They have, as of this recording, as of the last time I checked, they had 12 episodes just um, so far. It focuses on the... ATC recordings themselves, and there isn't a, a lot of, at this point anyway, a lot of uh, a greater detail about the situation and so forth. It's it's pretty much uh, just the recordings, but kind of fun. So I wonder if they'll do something about this uh, this close call at Kennedy. This would be a great candidate for that. Uh, yeah, depending on how they edit it, but uh, uh, I can't. Uh, I I listened to a few episodes, and maybe it's my uh, my failing. Uh, my failing hearing, because the hearing in my right ear is not as good as my left one anymore, which is the ear I listen to Nancy with, but I don't know. It, <laughs> it probably doesn't have anything to do with that. Probably not. Uh, yeah, uh, but I found it difficult sometimes to understand the conversations from the guys on the radio, uh, some of the some of the airplanes. And uh, I, I, I'm used to hearing that stuff in headphones, but honest to goodness, I couldn't understand some of them. Well, I find that frequently when I'm listening to ATC recordings, um, even from this uh, this runway incursion, I think that was, yeah, I think that was the example uh, on the on the news where sometimes the, the intelligibility, is that the right word, is, is very high and I can understand them. And there are other times where either the pilot or ATC is, is talking and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if you're a pilot, you know exactly what what was said, but for me, I just it just doesn't compute. Sometimes it's so fast. Um, sometimes the audio quality makes it difficult for me to understand what's going on. Uh, but I mean, when you're in a when you're flying, Rob, when you're in a plane, uh, does that happen often to you, where you have to have ATC repeat something because you don't understand it? Or no, uh, only uh, I only have that happen maybe at a at a place where it's really busy. And uh, and somebody's talking about and they go off to somebody else and you go whoa hang on a minute because you realize it's critical. Did you say you know Gulfstream six hundred five was cleared to cross? 
runway four left. Negative, hold short. Of, you know, and that's another thing. Uh, you know, if you listen to that, going back to that that near miss, uh, the guy at Kennedy said uh, Delta, whatever. Uh, you know, uh, cancel your takeoff clearance. Cancel your takeoff clearance. And what we were taught to say in the early days is, if you saw two, you go, you know. Uh, Gulfstream 605, stop, stop, stop. You know, huh. that it, we don't have, it's a, you don't have time to, don't worry about them interpreting, cancel your clearance or just get them to friggin' stop the airplane. Yeah. And so I, I was waiting to hear something like that when I heard the recording and I was a little surprised that he was so nice about it. Uh, but I'm sure his blood pressure was still a little high. No doubt. Um, you know, it's funny because one of the things that always impresses me most about Oshkosh is the clarity of their air traffic controllers. When you listen to live ATC at Oshkosh, yeah. given the volume of aircraft and stuff, the quality and, and, and the clarity of the um, communication is really impressive you know if you want to hear how it's supposed to be done listen to oshkosh on oh, arrival yeah. day yeah. um but in a side light though it were um a an added advantage is um and i know that this makes the atc guys happy is the pilots pretty much keep their mouth shut during the whole thing where you don't have it's a direct. It's a one-way kind of chatter. It's not really. I mean, that's where we get the rock your wings because that's your that's your acknowledgement of the direction. Not necessarily. There's not much communication back and forth. Whereas it's pretty much a one-way communication. But even still, the clarity of the communication is very impressive. Especially if something is going wrong, the directions and and such are. Very impressive. Well, and, and realize, too, that when we're hearing something played through NBC News that they got off a recording from FlightAware, you're, you're a couple of generations removed from the actual radio chatter. And it, I think it's kind of like uh, the old VCR tapes. It loses a little clarity each time you uh, redo it. Uh, but I, I, you know, you're right, David. I mean, Oshkosh is, is the primo, primo place to go. And that's where everybody learns to rock their wings. And all right, funny story years ago, when I was first working in the tower in Chicago, we had lots of young people, all my, you know, in their twenties learning this, that, whatever. And we started getting, uh, uh, a lot of civilians coming in because most of us were ex-military and, and we had a young woman uh, that was, she was actually really good once she got into it, but you know, it's like anything else. It takes a while to get used to, you know, look at, cause we were a VFR tower and you're looking at all these airplanes and you're trying, Oh, the red one fifty or the green one seventy, you know, and, and uh, uh, to, and we said, well, you know, if, if you need them, if you need to confirm that they hear something to say, rock your wings and, and you could see them doing it and all that stuff. And she got really excited one day and she said, eight, five golf, wing your rocks. <laughs> and, and everybody in the tower, including the guy that was training her, just, we were rolling on the floor. We were just, because we were trying not to 
distract her or make her feel bad. But it was just so funny because she was so adamant about that guy <laughs> winging his rocks. Um, but anyway, oh, her name she'll go. Na- we, she, she's nameless yeah. at this point. Yeah. And Ellen, if you're listening, we forgive you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's up with the geeks? I don't know. Do we have anything? Uh, maybe? Uh, only, only that I have a new jet huh? that I am. I have a new jet that I'm flying. Now, nobody is going to be able to see it uh, because I can only tell you about it. But it's, it's really cool. <laughs> and and I, can, I can do all kinds of cool stuff in this airplane. And uh, Max or David, what would you, how would you describe this to listeners? Uh, see, it says fighter jet right here. Um, it's, it's red. It's a red pullback F-14 that he's doing, currently doing barrel rolls with. Um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool, though. It's the closest thing you'll ever get to a um, jet fighter. It's got little rockets on it. Where did you get this? Uh, the kid down the street gave it to me. Because <laughs> he's, are you a pilot? I said, yeah. He said, you like my airplane? I said, oh, it's really cool, Ben. He said, you can have it. And I said, oh, wow. Thank you. And that kind of made up for the fact that I was out walking uh, Archie a couple of weeks ago, and he knocked this little kid over. <laughs> I, he, you know, oh, wow. kid's about eight years old and... Uh, he, Archie just doesn't realize that when he jumps up, he is pretty strong. And so I thought, well, this is good because I think we've made up. And uh, But I, I still like this little airplane. It's kind of cool. Very it doesn't make any noise, though. David, aren't these little things supposed to make noise when the wheels go? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you one that makes noise, Rob. Okay, this you should, Rob. You should take take a picture of this. We'll put it in the show notes. You know. Uh, okay, I Give guess. Give us a little, uh, I, a little shot. I, of that's it. yes, uh, that's a great idea. Um, okay. So wait. W- while Rob's doing that, David, anything uh, going on at the American Helicopter Museum? Are you guys making plans for twenty twenty three? Oh, we've got lots of plans. Um, we are slowly. Uh, actually, I have to admit, January has been surprisingly busy lots of people coming into the museum uh but you know january is supposed to be a time where you sort of gather your things together and such and getting myself organized for the upcoming year we have an extended event calendar um at least six book um lectures i will be doing this a sikorsky exhibit in june um, I'm currently working on a Whirly Girls exhibit, which will premiere um, the end of March, where we're, we're completely redoing that exhibit. Um, and a lot of changes. The biggest change probably in the next six to eight weeks is Leonardo Helicopter Corporation gave us a AW139 mock-up that we have um, we have lit up and um, removed the cockpit from the rest of the mock-up fuselage, and that will be a um, new fully glass cockpit interactive experience for um, our visitors, where where they'll be able to climb in the cockpit. It's got a full digital um, displays, and they'll be able to see what it's like to fly in a digital cockpit, where a lot of the other helicopters we have are are all steam gauges, like the OH-6 and such. So that will be a new 
And there's a lot of other things going on. It's hard to keep track of it. But if you want the list of activities and such, you can go to AmericanHelicopter.Museum or ahmec.org, and that gives you the website, and that'll give you the list of the events. Um, the books we will be doing, the book, uh, the books that we'll be doing, the lectures, will be definitely probably on um, via Zoom call, so people will be able to um, join in there. So we're pretty much booked through August and then second half of the year, we'll have to figure out what we're going to be doing. Good. Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah. I like the fact that the, uh, um, you know, some of these events uh, you're able to join in remotely, you know, via zoom so that anybody in the world could join in, which is terrific. Yeah. And, and everybody is aware that if you mention the fact that you, if you email me at, Vanderhoof at AmericanHelicopter.Museum, and you're interested in becoming a member, um, the American the Airplane Geeks podcast gets a 50% discount off of their first year individual membership, uh, so it would be $25 for the first year, and that gives you free access to all these events. Yeah, I just renewed my membership, actually. Uh, yeah, mine hasn't come up yet for renewal. I remember... You send out a notice when yes, I got expiring, I right? Yeah. Yep. Very good. All right. Well, we have a another Australia news desk. Oh no, we do two in a row. This is almost like the old good old days. And in no way am I going to attempt to capture the emails that went back and forth today in the last day or two concerning uh, our permission. Uh, to uh, accept the uh, the Ozdesk for for this episode, um, you you kind of had to be there. We we should run them. Could we put them in the show notes? Um, you know that might be. Uh, well, we have to ask Steve. I mean, I don't care, but you know he might. That's uh, yeah. It's just some, you know, friendly for those, you know, listening. It's just oh, some yeah, friendly it's, back and forth. Uh, uh, you know, it, it it involves Rob's dog and all, all kinds of other and, things. And Steve and Grant and uh, oh my God, how many how many years ago was it that we had the first Australia desk? I twenty ten. Is that right? That sounds. I I try. Yeah. He's the historian. He probably I know he, he should. Knows. David should know. Uh, he keeps all that stuff in his brain. He okay. Does. All right. So this is my problem. Yeah. Here we go. Dateline, 15th of January, 2023. Well, g'day, folks. Look at us. We're back, Grant, after one week for the Airplane Geeks podcast and for the Australia Desk, in fact, for episode 733. How about that, mate? Only after one whole week. There must be big news. I am gobsmacked, mate. I just cannot believe that we're back. This could set a really bad trend for us, paint us into a corner. But you are correct. Huge news. Our rumor was correct. We recorded on the Monday. It came out on the Airplane Geeks on the Wednesday in the US time, which was late Wednesday, very early Thursday, our time. And later on Thursday, the news came out. Bonza got their AOC. Woo! 
There you go, the Air Operator Certificate. You know, actually, Grant, last week I didn't actually uh, say to people who may not be into aviation so much what an AOC is. No, we weren't talking about that politician from New York or the uh, Australian Olympic Committee, as uh, someone else pointed out to us this week. (laughs) No, it is, in fact, an Air Operator Certificate. And, of course, that is uh, a regulatory approval to operate as a bona fide airline here in Australia. So uh, well done to them. And um, that's been, as you mentioned, Grant, a very, very long process. But uh, CEO of Bonzer Airline, Tim Jordan, speaking on uh, several media gigs this week, he sounded like a very relieved man. We are very, very pleased. It's been a fantastic effort from many, many people to get um, to where we are today. And um, over the coming days, we expect to be going on sale and with first flights soon thereafter. So uh, very exciting times um, across the whole of the country, um, but especially for Team Bonzer. Team Bonzer, I tell you, I still can't get my head around that, Grant. <laughs> it's going to be your problem for quite some time. I can see that you just you're not quite getting that whole you know bogan approach and the laid back approach. I mean, it, you can see it. You can see a lot of original Virgin Blue in this. That's actually a really good comparison. That's very that's very true. Actually, I hadn't ever really thought of it in those terms. Um, now. We mentioned last week and we've mentioned in previous times when we've chatted about Bonza Grant that they're going to be flying to different destinations from, from the big airlines, your Melbournes, your, your Sydneys and Brisbane's. Well, they are going to fly in here to Melbourne, but they're not going to be flying into Brisbane and Sydney. Sydney, of course, being Australia's largest city and most populous city. And, you know, there's some people there that are not happy about that. One of the news networks was talking to a prominent travel agent in Sydney, Belle Goldie. Here's what she had to say. Us Sydney agents, well, we're going to miss out once again and we feel like they're really doing their future passengers a disservice by not flying into Sydney. Well, I just wonder, Grant, whether she's taken the time to realise that it wouldn't matter how many travel agents are in Sydney that this airline doesn't plan to use them anyway. No, exactly. Whether they fly into Sydney or not, travel agents are out of the picture with Bonza because you can only book on Bonza's app. Hello? She hasn't looked. Yeah, Tim Jordan, uh, now he's had to address that quite a few times as people all of a sudden seem to have woken up and thought, well, hey, what's going on here? Why aren't you flying to these big cities? Well, they never were going to. We're really about uh, unserved and underserved markets. Um, 93% of our markets are not actually flown by any other airlines. So we're about new markets, stimulating new market demand. Um, Other airlines are all uh, very much focused on the business travellers, and that's for them, and that's fine. Um, We're really about um, leisure travellers, visiting friends and relatives, and that's the exciting thing. This is about unserved markets or underserved markets where fares are just very, very high, and we need to give a, a an alternative for low-cost travel. As I said last week, Grant, an interesting strategy. Let's just see how it works. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. We'll see if it pays off, just like I said last week. But, hey, you know, good on them. They are coming to Melbourne, but the main reason they're servicing Melbourne is because they're trying to get all of us freezing down South Victorians who want to get to warmer climes, especially during winter, and they're doing flights all the way up to the Sunshine Coast and beyond up in Queensland to get us out of the cold and onto a beach somewhere and promote tourism. That's why Melbourne's included, and that's why Sydney and Brisbane don't have to be because they're already covered by others. Well, there you go. Well, Grant, uh, good luck to them. And speaking of airlines that are going to be resuming flying into Sydney and other ports in Australia, some of the big Chinese carriers who we haven't seen a lot of traffic from over the COVID years um, are, are planning a comeback. 
That's right, mate. Uh, China dropped their shields back on January 8th. They've reopened. They've said, all right, come on down. Uh, you just have to show you that you don't have COVID through a test within, I think it's 48 hours of departing to come to China. Uh, the same kind of thing that Australia is saying for anyone coming from China to Australia, and that's also Hong Kong, of course. But uh, yeah, so January 8th, China dropped their shields, reopened. You don't have to quarantine. And the big three, which is China Southern, Air China, and China Eastern, are all going back to normal levels, except that China Southern and Air China are going to increase the frequency of their flights to Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, very interesting. And, of course, um, it's really hit Australia's tourist industry hard with the the absence, the complete absence of uh, Chinese tourists. Uh, and I guess to a lesser extent, business travellers. I think probably I would anticipate a a reasonably tentative restart, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Still lots of, obviously, COVID news making the headlines in and out of China, so um, I think that's going to affect it for a while. But interesting to see that those airlines uh, think at least now it's time to start bringing those aircraft back. Well, they also see that it's a thawing of relations between China and Australia. You know, there was a lot of, no, you shouldn't go there and things like that, and uh, many Chinese were actively discouraged for coming here, even once we did drop the COVID borders and things like that. That theme and messaging from the Chinese government seems to be changing lately. Uh, Things seem to have mellowed and thawed a little. So hopefully that does bring a few more people in uh, to help our tourist industry. We're not quite as dependent on tourism as many parts of the Pacific are and many other countries in Asia and so on. But, uh, you know, we'll take whatever we can get because every buck counts. Mm. And as an interesting aside, of course, uh, Qantas recently announced that it will be resuming flights uh, to Hong Kong again from the end of this month. So there you go. I guess uh, that's a little bit of uh, reciprocity there, if you could call it that. Is that a word, Grant? That sounds like a thesaurus salad for lunch. <laughs> oh, you're trying to get in shape again by uh, getting stuck into that thesaurus or thesaurus. Salad. Yes. Okay. Nice one. The uh, sounds like an out of this world kind of meal, but hey, I'm going to segue here and go. Speaking of out of this world, Skycraft. Woo-hoo. Are you sure it's not Sky? Isn't, isn't it Skynet that's active? Grant, isn't that what no, we have no. to be worried about? No, this is the Australian one. You don't have to be so worried about it. This is Skycraft. It's an Australian company that back on 3rd of January launched five satellites from Cape Canaveral via SpaceX. Why is this important and why are we talking about it now? Well, mostly because we didn't get a chance to talk about it because we were talking Bonza last time. But um, they launched on the 3rd of January. They're all Australian-built satellites. They're using majority Australian components. And this is the largest formation of Australian spacecraft ever. It's five of them. I know. Come on. It's like our C-17s. Yeah, yeah, we know. Everyone's got more than us. But the uh, the big thing is that these were all Australian. They've been launched. They're up there. And over the past seven days, Skycraft's been doing a whole lot of critical operations testing, making sure communications is working, uh, checking that the batteries are being charged, all the operations of the mission computers and so on. And these spacecraft are actually going to be up there to help out air services to give better coverage via ADSB and VHF comms across Australia and in our flight information regions out over the Pacific and so on. That is going to be a, a huge uh, uh, plus for operating aircraft in this part of the world where um, obviously you, you got to get over some of the more remote parts of Australia. You don't, in times past, have not had the sort of coverage that perhaps, say, our, our friends who fly aircraft in the US would be used to. And I guess even perhaps Europe too. I, I sometimes think, as I mentioned last week, people don't realise how big Australia is. So uh, once <laughs> we get this up and running, 
um, that's that's going to be fantastic tech. Well, they talk about the uh, J curve, so to speak, which is basically eastern seaboard from roughly north of Brisbane. You've got pretty good radar coverage all the way down the eastern seaboard, round to Melbourne, and then back across to Adelaide. And then there's this big yawning gap in the middle, and then you get to Perth and uh, you know, up, in, up in Darwin and Townsville and so on, various areas like that. But in the middle, there's nothing. It's almost the size of the continental United States, and there's no radar coverage in the middle. So the ADSB, the VFR traffic, and of course, Skycraft aren't just doing this for Australia. They're going to boost their constellation, their formation, you might say, of uh, satellites, and they're going to be covering all the areas with gaps in surveillance and communications such as remote and oceanic areas. So good on you, Aussies. Skycraft doing it for us. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, that's everything I have for you on this week's Australia Desk. You know what, Grant? This has been fun doing this two weeks in a row. I wonder if we could make it back next week. Yeah, tell him he's dreaming. (laughs) Well, we'll see how we go. Until next week, possibly. I'm Steve Fisher. And I'm Grant McCarran going, oh, what have you done, mate? What have you done? (laughs) Cheers, folks. Sorry, buddy. Oh, uh, you know, maybe maybe our wives will allow us. <laughs> I forgot how much fun they are to hang out with. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and we it was one of those years back, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, somewhere in there, when Stephen Grant came to the U.S. to uh, to attend Air Venture and twenty eleven. Uh, twenty eleven. Okay, so that was uh, uh, four years, years ago. ago. Eleven yeah, years. There you go. Uh, 12 years ago. Right. I I knew that. I was just funning with you. But uh, when they came through, uh, we all went up to Oshkosh together. They they stayed here at Camp Jetwine. And uh, 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 our old dog, uh, Mr. Simba, uh, because where I'm at is a a, a building on our property, but uh, considerably removed from the house. And when they were up here in sleeping bags and stuff, uh, Simba wouldn't leave him alone. He they he would not let them be uh, up here at night by themselves. He departed the house, and every night he was up here, either sleeping with Steve or sleeping with Grant. I mean, I you know, well, yeah, what am I chopped liver? Yeah, <laughs> where was I? Was there too? He was ignoring me though. Uh, were you here too? He's forgot. Uh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, well, you know, David. You you don't have that kind of funky accent like those foreigners do. <laughs> so, Rob, did the was the dog spending so much time with them because uh, Simba didn't trust them, or because oh, he no. just liked he, them a lot? Better? He was a big baby. He just loved he loved hanging out with everybody. Uh, and uh, I big baby is kind of a big Simba was terrifying. If you if he if he if he. <laughs> if he <laughs> And and David, for what it's worth, uh, Simba was uh, ninety two or ninety three pounds, and uh, Archie is a hundred and six. So when people see him, they go, "Oh my God, it's a little horse." Uh, He's not as big as a Great Dane, but he's not that much smaller. Yeah, I was going to say this is coming from someone who has an eighteen pound chorgi. So, so the guys were mentioning uh, China Southern, and it's uh, probably worth mentioning that uh, apparently China is flying the seven three seven Max again. How uh, you know when when the Max aircraft were grounded after the two uh, accidents, 
eventually they approved, authorized to fly again, except in, in China, which has been kind of a holdout in that regard and um, has not uh, has not been flying the 737 MAX planes. But uh, just the other day, uh, China Southern flew one. Um, this is according to uh, Flight Radar 24, flew a, uh, I guess it's a MAX 8 aircraft operated by China Southern, traveled from uh, Guangzhou to Shenzhou. Uh, so apparently they're they're flying again in China, which I think will probably make Boeing uh, very happy. Yeah, and they just started uh, again. I think this last, was it last week, I believe, was the first MAX flight in China in yeah, yeah, four just, years or yeah. something, or three and a half. All right. Uh, hey, one uh, one final shout out. Uh, this is uh, from something. There's some, been some chatter over on Mastodon for those of you who have uh, left Twitter and are over on Mastodon. Uh, there is a uh, PhD research study, and um, this individual is looking for pilots for U.S. airlines to take uh, take part in this uh, in this survey. That's part of the, his uh, uh, study which is titled The Predictive Relationship Between Organizational Innovativeness and Airline Pilots' Perception of Employer Attractiveness. So he says he wants to learn about what aspects of innovation might make an airline more attractive to pilots when they decide which airline to apply for. And so in order to be eligible for this um, study, you have to be an FAA-certified pilot holding an ATP, between 25, uh, 23 and 65 years old and actively employed as a pilot for a Part 121 operator in the U.S. Um, if you uh, fly exclusively for other carriers or the military or if you are currently furloughed by your employer, then you're not eligible for this survey to assist the, the study. So we're hoping that uh, those who are you know, eligible for the for the survey, will take part in it. The website where you can find this is simply airlinepilotstudy.net, airlinepilotstudy.net. We'll have that in the show notes, of course. But um, yeah, see if you can help them out if you're eligible to do this. All right, well, I think that will do it for uh, for this episode. Sorry about the, uh, I guess I'll call it a mix-up with the guest. Not sure what happened. Um, we have guests booked uh, all through the month of, well, the rest of this month, January, all through February, and even into March, we have lots of lots of guests coming up. Uh, you can find us, of course, at airplanegeeks.com and show notes uh, for this episode, airplanegeeks.com slash 733. That's the episode number. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Rob, anything uh, closing? Want to tell folks where they can find you or any other... Uh, insightful comments? I think I have spoken so much tonight that I feel, <clears throat> I feel a bit awkward saying anything. Uh, just, you know, uh, the usual places. Okay. How about you, David? I think we're, we're, we'll leave it at, if you want to join our Slack listener team, send us an email to the, the geeks at airplanegeeks.com where you can, we have lots and lots of interesting conversations going on there. And, of course, you can find all of us on all of the various social medias. So um, look for us there until next week. And, of course, 
if you haven't listened to us, we're, we've been on sporadically, but we're probably going to go for like the Australia desk three weeks in a row on the UAV Digest on this Friday. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we, we, we were a little bit sporadic with that, but yeah, back in the saddle. All right. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Nighty night. Keep the blue side up. And thanks for listening. <laughs>